Old Testament, those paradoxes were there. Abraham had to leave his home in order to find his home. And those paradoxes continue through church history. All of us um, who've been in the church for any time will have known those people who uh, declare that they've died to self as they go through the waters of baptism and then spend the rest of their life in the church sulking in church meetings because they don't get their own way. There are lots of paradoxes that we um, find and um, somebody even wrote a hymn about it. We don't sing it very much, but let me just read you one verse of that hymn. He wrote this, Make me a captive, Lord, and then I shall be free. Force me to render up my sword, and I shall conqueror be. I sink in life's alarms when by myself I stand. Imprison me within thine arms, and strong shall be my hand. The Christian life is full of paradoxes, and Paul gives us another one in these verses when he tells the Christians in Rome uh, that they are to offer themselves as living sacrifices. Now, in human terms, you can either be living or you can be a sacrifice. You cannot be both. I mean, nobody expects the meat on the barbie to jump up and start walking around. That's not what we think should be happening. So what is Paul saying when he tells us to be living sacrifices? I think he's saying this, that having been brought to our true selves in Christ, having understood that it is through the grace that God offers us through Jesus Christ that we can be made God's children, then we are to offer ourselves in total service to that same Jesus. Some of us here, not many of us, but some of us are old enough to remember Graham Kendrick back in the 70s singing about offering God the Sundays and the dog ends of our time. Well, that's not what Paul is talking about here. He's not saying give to God what you've got left over when you can fit it in. He's saying give the whole of your lives to serving God through Christ. Whoever we are, wherever we are, whatever we do, it is to be offered up to God. The paradox comes after 11 chapters of uh, Paul explaining that it is by grace that we are saved. We can do nothing to earn God's favour. It is entirely God's mercy that allows us to call ourselves his children. And, that's, and then he twists things around, which is why the opening of chapter 12 starts, therefore, basically saying, look, in, in the light of, of all that's gone before... I've told you it's about grace, it's about what God does for you. Now I'm saying, in the light of that, give yourselves back to God. Offer yourselves to him. It's, it seems strange, doesn't it? On the one hand, Paul has argued from chapter after chapter and chapter that it's all about what God does. And now here in chapter 12, he seems to be saying, actually, it's all about what you do. So how do we square that circle? How do we make sense of that. Paul is telling us that what we sing about on Sundays, what we've been singing about this evening, that we're the recipients of the grace of God, has to be demonstrated on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday in every area of our lives. Jesus told the people who were listening to him when he preached that. Uh, 
famous Sermon on the Mount, let your light so shine before the world. Why? So they will see your good works and glorify your Father. Go out there and do good things, Jesus was saying. What we do in these walls, in the walls of all our church buildings, Sunday by Sunday, is only significant in the difference that it makes when we leave. Now, most of us maybe spend an hour, maybe say let's two hours in a church service. Let's say, let's say it's two hours we spend in a church service. If that's true, it means there are 166 hours in the week for us to be church out there. So there's more time out there than there is in here. And it's out there that Paul is saying we've got to make a difference. We've got to go and be church out there with our families and our friends and our work colleagues, with strangers, wherever we find ourselves. And here's an interesting thing. Then Paul says that being church out there, being that living sacrifice, surrendered to God in every area of our lives... He says this um, in these opening verses of Romans 12. This is holy and pleasing to God. It is your true and proper worship. Do you get that? Your true and proper worship. Paul is saying it is much more about what we do out there than what we sing about in here. Now in the Old Testament, the prophet Amos had some harsh words about how God sometimes feels about his people when they gather for worship. This is what he says in Amos chapter 5. He says, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs, I will not listen to the music of your harps. Pretty harsh, isn't it? Really, given that we we spend a lot of our time making music, maybe not with harps, but with, with other things as well. Why does he say that? Well, because earlier in the chapter he says this. You tax the poor. You oppress the innocent. You take bribes. You deprive the poor of justice. In other words, God was saying through Amos, you're singing all these songs of praise and worship to me and yet you're living out there entirely as you want to live. And Isaiah had a a similar message. Uh, Isaiah chapter 1 says, I cannot bear your worthless assemblies, your new moon feasts, your appointed festivals. I hate with all my being. They've become a burden to me. I'm weary of hearing, of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. That's quite harsh again, isn't it? Because we, we assume that when we pray, God will listen. And here he is saying to his people, I'm not listening. I'm not listening because there is no correlation between what you're doing when you're gathered together and what you're doing when you're spread out in the world. And he goes on, he says, this is what is important. You need to learn to do right, seek justice, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. Now I find that really interesting. At times, 
God says he hates our songs, he hates our worship, he hates our gatherings. But I can't find anywhere in the whole of the Bible when God says, I hate it when you show love to the loveless. I can't stand the time you're giving to ensure that that friend has someone to talk to. I detest you giving away your money to those in need. It just doesn't happen. It's not there. Because, as Paul says, this is true worship. When we learn to live surrendered lives, whatever we're doing, wherever we're doing it. So what we see is that God's call then and now is that if we want to dare to call ourselves church, the people of God, the body of Christ, then we need to be championing justice, standing up against evil, getting on the side of the poor, the dispossessed, the homeless, the lonely, the marginalized, and the abused. And unless Sunday by Sunday we are driven from these pews to go out and seek ways in which we can do those very things, then to be honest, we are wasting our time meeting together. Like many of you, this morning I was in a church service and there were thousands of people all over uh, this area gathered together in church services. Meanwhile, um, the Extinction Rebellion uh, people were organising protests, one of them taking place down by the Tamar Bridge. And I couldn't help asking myself, was I in the right place? Now, I'm not giving you an answer. I'm not telling you what you should do. But we need to be asking those questions. Is actually God calling us to be elsewhere when we perhaps find it more comfortable, easier to be gathered together in ourselves? I preached my first sermon when I was 16. Well, I call it a sermon. I was only 16. I mean, probably if I heard it back now, I'd cringe with embarrassment. But it was quite a big thing for me to be allowed to speak in a church service at that age. And um, afterwards, uh, people were very kind. And then my dad came up to me and uh, he said to me just this. He said, don't just say things. Anyone can say things. And to be honest, at the time, I was a bit hurt. I wanted, you know, a pat on the shoulder and a well done, son. But over the years, I realized he was absolutely right. He was giving me the best advice anybody could give me. Don't just talk about our faith. Make it happen. Live it out. And he was certainly a man who lived what he believed and cared for people in ways that inspired me. Don't just say things. Anyone can say things. Winston Churchill put it um, another way. He said this, I no longer listen to what people say. I watch what they do. Behaviour never lies. So, let's think about in what ways are we being worshippers of God? Is God likely to say to any of us at some time soon, stop your singing and get out there and be the church where it matters? Well, having made this call for us to be those living sacrifices, Paul goes on in the later verses to remind us that we belong to one another. We're members of the same body. 
it says. And it strikes me that if we belong to one another, then we have a responsibility to one another, to encourage one another to get out there and make a difference, to stand by one another when it's tough for people, to support one another when actually doing the, the, the things that God has called us to do means we're not always at the church gatherings, but actually encouraging them and affirming that what they're doing is right. And sometimes we might be called to do things that uh, won't be understood by everyone else and our good works will get thrown back in our faces. And at those times we need brothers and sisters in Christ who say, no, you're doing what God wants and we want to encourage you to go on. Sometimes we'll go out there with loving words, trying to be God's people in the world and all we'll be faced with is abuse and we need people to encourage us to keep going. So we need to learn, I, I believe, as a church, not only to learn individually that we are called to be church out there far more than we're called to be church in here, but we're also, I think, need to learn how to be much better at supporting and encouraging one another and releasing one another to go to those hard, difficult and lonely places. How can we do this? Well, there are all kinds of ways and you could talk about it uh, afterwards or in your house groups. But here's a couple of suggestions. First of all, one of the ways we could do this to help people believe that what they do out there matters, and I, I believe this passionately, we have got in the church to stop using the word ministry as though it belongs to a special group of people. I cringe every time I hear someone in a church service or a meeting talk about being in ministry. We are all, if we're Christian people, in ministry. Whether we're preaching on a Sunday or feeding the homeless on the streets. And judging by what Amos and Isaiah have to say, the latter may well be a better expression of ministry than the former. So let's just recognize that we are all in this together. And nobody is more called than anybody else. And secondly suggest that we should be encouraging people to see that their work, whatever they do during the week, is of value and is of supreme importance to the way the church is seen and understood. You know, in our churches, if someone says they're going to serve God in the heart of Africa, we pray for them. If someone says God is calling us to Bible college, we get very excited and make a big thing of it. But when, as a church, and if you do this, forgive me, but I'm sure it doesn't happen in many churches, when, as a church, did we last gather all the working mums together who struggle to do their work to the glory of God and manage their families and pray for them and recognise what they're doing is God's ministry? We pray for our Sunday school leaders, and that's important, but how often... Do we pray for the person who has chosen to go and work in a failing school where they struggle to keep going? It matters that we say to every single person, what you do is ministry, and we recognize it and we'll back you in it. When I was uh, uh, pastor at Chaddlewood uh, Baptist, we used to uh, do uh, a thing called This Time Tomorrow. We're not unique in this, and you may have done it here sometime, but uh, just in case, let me explain. Uh, we used to ask people uh, from the congregation, uh, we used to call out uh, and select somebody each week and ask them, what will you be doing this time tomorrow? Um, 
have to remind you that would be a morning service we asked that because to be honest if you ask people in an evening service what will you be doing this time tomorrow most of them will be saying having a cup of tea and watching Emmerdale so um, it works better in a morning but it's still worth doing if you can't do it in a morning and we they would explain where they would be what they would be doing we would recognize that that was their ministry in Christ and we would ask them three questions what is good about what you do what is challenging about what you do and how can we pray for you? Now, I don't know, but I suspect that all the people we asked to do that over the years, it made a difference to them to realise that we took seriously what they were doing. And they were doing all kinds of things. And I just leave that as a, a suggestion for you if it's not something you've already done. It may be that to be church out there, we have to cut down on some of the churchy things that we do so that people have the freedom to go and seek and serve God in the forgotten areas of our community and that they can do it without feeling guilty that they should be at a church meeting or a service or a prayer event. Now get me right, don't go away tonight and saying, oh he came and said being there on a Sunday doesn't matter. I'm not saying that but what I am saying is it only matters if it enables us to go out ready to serve God in every area of our lives. Let me end with two thoughts about this. The first is, again, many of you who've been at, at Mutley a long time will remember Irene Clifford, who was a member here and then became uh, a member at Chadlewood and uh, went through various uh, times of, of illness with cancer uh, and, and other things. And I remember one time when Irene had been ill going to see her and being astonished at all the flowers in her home because people had been so kind. And that was great, absolutely filled with flowers. And she said to me, she said, I've noticed something. She said, I've discovered something with all these flowers. She said, if you put lilies in the same vase as other flowers, they die. You leave them on their own, they flourish. Now I think when we think about being the church out there, some of us worry that when we go out there amongst those people who aren't in here on a Sunday, it'll be so challenging and so difficult that we'll wilt and we'll collapse and our faith won't be what it was. Because the problem is we think we're lilies. Well, if you take nothing else away from you tonight, take these words, we are not lilies. And we, through the grace that God gives us in Christ, can flourish in among the hurting and lonely and scared and frightened people of the world. So that's one thing. We're not lilies. Here's the second thing I want to, to, to share to finish with. You know, I can't imagine standing face to face with Jesus in eternity and him asking me, just tell me, how often did you sing 10,000 Reasons or that peculiar song about following a lighthouse? But I do know that he will say this because he tells us in Matthew 25, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. 
And when the people he says that to say, when did that happen, Lord? The king will reply, truly, I tell you, whenever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did it for me. Let's pray together. So we pause and reflect on how we can be the church out there. Let me read you some more verses of that hymn I read at the beginning. My power is faint and low till I have learnt to serve. It wants the needed fire to glow. It wants the breeze to nerve. It cannot drive the world until itself be driven. Its flag can only be unfurled when thou shalt breathe from heaven. My will is not my own till thou hast made it thine. If it would reach a monarch's throne, it must its crown resign. It only stands unbent amid the clashing strife when on thy bosom it has lent and found in thee its life. Lord God, we sang earlier tonight that it's all about you, Jesus, and all this is for you. Lord, make it so. Amen.